CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us uh, today. We've got a lot of news to talk about, so I want to get right to introducing our panel. Uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us, as he is on most Thursdays. Kevin, how you doing? You holding up pretty well still in the midst of this pandemic? Uh, I am, Bill, and you know how much I look forward to this uh, hour every week. Um, I'm going to probably you know, make a suggestion to you when we're off the air that you think about doing this on Saturday since we'll have no college football this fall. <laughs> not so fast, Mr. Riley. The SEC has not spoken yet, and we'll talk about that a little later in the show. You suggested you'd like to talk about that, and we can very well do that. Um, Patricia Murphy is with us as well. Patricia Murphy is a syndicated columnist. You read her columns in Roll Call, and uh, I've been seeing your columns pop up in USA Today as well, Patricia. Of course, you also worked on the other side of uh, politics when you were on the Hill working for Senators Max Cleland as uh, well as uh, the legendary Sam Nunn. But now you're on the right side of uh, exactly of as a journalist, Patricia. How are you doing? And how are your kids? You've, you're one of the parents great. who has to figure out what the heck. Yeah. Yes, I'm doing great. They're doing great. Um, uh, the Democratic Convention is next week, so I feel like life is returning. It just Things are happening kind of a little bit. Um, so things, anything to cover, I'm just grateful for <laughs> any sort of normalcy and then well, the Republican <laughs> Convention after that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to life. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> I'm I, I at some point I'm going to make an announcement about our coverage of the, the both conventions, and I'll do that a little bit later in the show. Uh, Representative Chuck F. Stration, Republican uh, from Decula, is uh, with us again. We're really glad to have you back, Representative F. Stration. Uh, we should tell people that in addition to your work in the legislature, you are an attorney. I, but I don't know what kind of law you practice, Chuck. Well, thank you so much for having me, Bill. I, pr- I have a general practice, practice a great deal of family law and a, a few other areas, but I really appreciate you having me back. Enjoy discussing the issues uh, with you on the program. Well, thanks for being here. And we're really glad to have Dr. Andra Gillespie back with us today. She, of course, is a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute, which deals with issues of race uh, and Andra, I suspect that you're that the institute and in these times is more important than ever to the work you're doing, right? So we just did orientation with our fellows for this year, and one of the things we pointed out was, uh, you know, the times are what they are, but we've been doing this work all along, and it's our goal to continue to shed light on these issues and to help to provide insight. So we're just we're just going to keep on doing what we do. All right. Well, at some point, we should talk about it in more depth. In fact, we may want to figure out a way that we can take some of the things you're working on, build a show around them. I think that sounds like a good thing to do in the future, right? Sure. Happy to do it. All right. Um, Let me start. I do want to start with just a brief uh, couple of words about the coronavirus. Uh, You heard the headlines a few minutes ago. Things are uh, fairly bleak, unfortunately, in Georgia right now. The Washington Post, as we reported, says that we have the highest per capita uh, rate of COVID-19 in the country. 
right now. Uh, we had uh, uh, in excess of 100 deaths two days in a row. Yesterday, there were 122 deaths reported by the State Department of Public Health. Um, and uh, we now have 222,400 total cases of coronavirus. That places us, I, in every chart I've seen, fifth in the nation for number of cases. Chuck Evstration, you said right before we went on the air that you had been giving some thought to uh, Georgia and coronavirus, and, and I said I'd love to hear what you're thinking about. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Of course, this has been um, a difficult year for us all, and considering the health consequences as well as the economic consequences, educational consequences of this pandemic have been top of mind. The General Assembly in March approved an additional $100 million for fighting coronavirus in Georgia. And of course, that was followed up with, with subsequent legislation when we reconvened in June, particularly guidelines for businesses, liability protection for businesses to open, and also providing additional funding for this fight. But as I've learned more and, and as we continue to work on this issue, I'm proposing today that we have a plan to fight COVID-19 in Georgia doing more, and that begins with first making testing with same-day results available to all Georgians for free. I think that that testing component is absolutely critical so that we can have rapid result testing available. Number two, directly assisting parents in need of safe, socially distanced daytime virtual learning locations for parents uh, who live in school districts where virtual learning is going on, how can kids remain safe and receive the educational instruction that they, that they need? And third, to create a state certification for businesses compl complying with COVID-19 guidelines in order to restore consumer confidence. So if businesses are following the guidelines, doing what needs to be done, how customers can be made aware of that so that they can patronize those businesses. We're in the midst of an international crisis right now, and uh, taking direct action in these types of areas, I think, is what's needed so that we can move our state forward, that we can address these increase in numbers, and so that uh, we can all together get through this crisis. I had no idea when we invited you to be on the show today that you were going to make news with uh, this. But first of all, the question about free testing and rapid results, do we have money? Uh, to pay for that? And how do you propose that happen? And then second, uh, when you say you're proposing all this, in, how are you making this uh, proposal? In what form and where do you expect it to go next? So the state of Georgia has a balanced budget that's already been passed for this year. Uh, of course, the federal government is equipped and prepared to provide assistance in crisis funding for effective use of dollars. And so the specific request would be for federal government support, and this also follows the technology. So as testing and lab availability is made, this can be expanded. But beginning in hotspot areas with specific requests for funding, I believe that this can be done. This is, uh, this is something that I'm going to continue to talk about and be working toward between now and the uh, convening of the General Assembly in January 2021. So, all right, we're, Kevin, it, your newspaper has been relentless in arguing, uh, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, you've been aggressively arguing for uh, um, tougher restrictions, for expanded testing. 
I we didn't know Chuck Estration was going to mention this on the show, but uh, he's more in line with what you've been talking about for quite some time in the pages of the AJC. Well, yeah, and I would say actually, Bill, that and and with what the best experts we can find, including many that have we've talked to on this show, have have been pushing as well. Um, I guess I've got to ask, uh, uh, Representative Estration. I mean, what about the governor? I mean, it has become clear that he is philosophically, apparently, completely opposed to going any further than he has gone uh, around a mask mandate, around some of these other uh, mandates. I mean, uh, do you think he would support what you're saying? My focus is on representing the district that I represent in the State House, that's Lawrenceville and Decula, and making the best possible proposal for debate and discussion and for implementation going forward. And I believe that concrete plans like this, specific ideas about how we can do more to address this pandemic will be received well by all elected officials in Georgia. But yeah, I'd love to um, talk also a little bit more about your idea for funding for education, for kind of small, um, small setting for students. What I'm seeing and what I've done some reporting on is that a number of parents do not feel safe or school systems are closed entirely to in-person learning. And the parents with money are able to hire now tutors to create their own pod. They'll hire a tutor for the entire school year. Um, there are churches, there are gymnasiums that are offering kind of like pod proctoring. You just bring your device and drop your kid off at nine in the morning until three in the afternoon, but it's very expensive. And so the parents who have the resources to take the next step or even an emergency step um, are able to or are planning to have this interim step. I worry so much about those families without the resources. If there's no in-person learning and they can't afford to have anybody else come in to help them with their children, um, there's going to be a huge crisis for those children. Um, if this goes on for six months, a year, there, there is no plan B right now. Patricia, what I'm hearing from my constituents is really in line with what you're describing and questions as to what long-term will the plan be for virtual learning? Some parents are very frustrated by uh, issues around virtual learning and uh, lack of predictability as to how long this might last causes uh, economic concerns as far as the ability to work. So the idea here is to provide direct assistance to parents who are looking for safe virtual learning locations if the local school system has adopted a virtual learning uh, option or mandate, and uh, that would allow for social distancing that would allow for best practices to be complied with so that uh, we, can, we can have greater certainty with respect to what the future looks like and, just as importantly, address the educational needs of these students. Um, Representative Estration, I, I really applaud the work that you're doing here. Um, but I think Kevin may have been trying to get at this before, and I think it's really kind of important to say I think that that's important. I think that making sure that students' learning doesn't get interrupted is also important. But I do wonder if it's kind of dealing with important things, but things that kind of relate to the margins. Like when I see what, what Etowah High School looked like before they had to shut down, um, the idea that they didn't plan for how to get kids in and out of classrooms with, uh, you know, and allowing for social distancing and the fact that there's no mask mandate 
that's the thing that, that really is troubling. And I think it's really troubling when you start school and within a week you're having to shut schools down and you're having to isolate students and you're seeing teachers and students getting sick. That, it's that level of planning that I think is helpful that is needed in addition to the things that, that, that you're talking about. So I hope that you and your colleagues, you know, will continue to push the governor to just ask for some real common sense sort of, you know, things that could help minimize the spread. I think what we're learning from this is not just that, you know, kids have milder cases, um, you know, which may be true, but the idea is the reason why kids haven't been the source of the spread was because we put them in our homes in March. And then we've just kept them there for the last five months. So, you know, once we put them back out in the circulation, they start to transmit the virus in the same way that older people do. And we see that some the science is suggesting that that's particularly true for older children. So, you know, I just wish that people would be a little bit more um, nimble in their response and do some of the obvious things first, in addition to the other obvious things that I think you're suggesting would seem perfectly reasonable. Well, I, I think this is a really great point. I think ultimately this is a complex problem with many different issues and facets to it that will need to be addressed. And following the experts' recommendations to implement best practices to address these things and building consensus on what needs to be done to address it is really what's critical. These three points I brought up are not going to fix every issue, but they are aspects, I think, of this problem that we could uh, unify around and implement to make a marked uh, benefit for uh, the constituents that I represent and members of the legislature represent across the state. Representative Stration, could you uh, just, uh, you surprised us a little bit with this news. Could you just quickly give us the three things you're talking about again in summary so that our listeners who may have missed it uh, can be absolutely certain on what you're you're suggesting here? Yeah, my, my plan is to make testing with same-day results available to all Georgians for free. The second thing is to directly assist parents in need of safe, socially distanced, daytime virtual learning locations. And third, to create a state certification for businesses complying with COVID-19 guidelines to restore consumer confidence. These three aspects, I think, would have a marked benefit for the citizens of the state and their ideas that uh, are not going to be easy to accomplish, but I do believe that they are achievable. Um, and again, um, I think, uh, Sam, we're going to do this. I'm going to ask this final question right now. Then why don't we get a break out of the way to come back? We really want to talk about Kamala Harris. But again, uh, Chuck, you're uh, proposing that this what what that your three points that it's the federal government that should step in to provide funding for this, right? We're, we've already passed the budget for 2021, and yes, right. uh, yes, I think direct request for funding from the federal government will allow us to help weather this crisis in an effective way. All right. Thank you for sharing that with us, and, and I'm sure we'll be following up on it on the show as you uh, move this forward. Um, let's do this. We, we do have a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to uh, the selection of Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate. We have other news as well, but why don't we get a break out of the way early and come back and take up our next topics on today's Political Rewind. (laughs) 
We're back with Dr. Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, Kevin Riley, and Representative Chuck F. Stration. Um, Andre Gillespie, I have to tell you that because over the years people have heard you uh, talk about uh, 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 African Americans in American politics, they are familiar with uh, the work you did on your book on the impact that President Obama had in terms of the African American community during his tenure. And so, when Kamala Harris was finally officially announced, I cannot tell you how many notes I got from listeners who said, we want to hear from Andre Gillespie as soon as possible about this. And so, with that in mind, I'm just going to say to you, tell us, give us your general thoughts, and then we'll have a much more specific conversation about Kamala Harris. Well, that, that's very flattering first, so thank you. Um, you know, I, w- I wasn't surprised by the choice. Um, Harris is the consensus choice. And so if we look at sort of the candidates that we knew were on the short list, everybody had their bundles of strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think she had the right combination of strengths and weaknesses, so not to minimize her weaknesses, but I think her strengths outweighed it. So if I have to compare her to some of the leading contenders for the job, um, you know, first of all, we're going to talk about this in terms of, of, of race. Um, the idea that uh, Joe Biden was going to pick an African-American woman got a lot of traction. And I think it had been built up so much that if he had deviated from that and chosen somebody else, even um, a, an, another a woman of a different racial ethnic minority background that wasn't white, there would have been a lot of consternation. And I think that there would have been a lot of cleanup that he would have had to have done amongst black voters. Um, particularly activists within the Democratic Party that are pushing for black women to get their due because they are the most loyal Democratic voting bloc in the United States with an almost a near unanimous Democratic voting um, pattern at this particular juncture. So, you know, I think he had to pick a black woman. And if we looked at the black women, if we start, you know, with our our own homegrown candidates, um, she has federal experience. She has statewide electoral experience that Keisha Lance Bottoms and Stacey Abrams don't have yet at that point. Um, and their political careers, I think, and futures are very bright. And I think we should acknowledge that if we compare her to um, Karen Bass and, 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 and Susan Rice in particular, I think her liabilities, uh, while real, were actually uh, less than, um, than theirs. Um, so if we're thinking about um, one, you know, Karen Bass is a congresswoman. She, you know, hasn't had hadn't had the campaign testing of, of having run at a statewide level before. And then when the allegations came out about her praising Fidel Castro, um, you know, the moniker communist Karen came out there. And I think it resonates more than phony Kamala does at this point. And I think that that was a boon in, in Harris's favor. Um, and then if we compare it to uh, Susan Rice, again, Susan Rice doesn't have any electoral experience at all. And her connection to Benghazi was just waiting for the negative ad to write itself. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, she ended up being the consensus choice. It's a safe choice. You pick a senator. You pick somebody who has run for president before who has national name recognition. She right now has a net positive favorability rating. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that actually made a whole lot of sense about this choice. So, uh, Patricia, I want to make a couple of uh, comments uh, just as we move forward. Number one, uh, her name is Kamala Harris. And I've noticed that for some reason there are certain Republicans who have chosen to mispronounce the name, maybe accidentally. It does seem like a pattern, uh, much in the same way that we hear some Republicans talk about the Democrat Party. So her name is Kamala Harris. She is of Indian and Jamaican uh, descent. Uh, Andre, quick question. 
I've been challenged when I've said on the show that she's African-American, that in fact, of course, she's not. She's Indian and Jamaican. How do we uh, say that? And then I want to go to Patricia. Okay, so um, she is biracial. Um, and so if we look at her ancestry, uh, it is black and it is uh, and it's South Asian. Um, and so uh, she would describe herself as black. Um, and African American, I think, being is being used here as a, as a term of art that's interchangeable with African American. Right. Um, African Americans are a diverse right. people, despite what Joe Biden said last week. NABJ and NAHJ, um, and uh, that includes people who come uh, from immigrant backgrounds from Africa or from the Caribbean. And she was born in the United States, so that would make her American of African descent by way of Jamaica. Right. Um, so okay, um, I just. Know, so yeah, so I mean, yes. Yeah, so she, I mean, so she, so she uses a certain, you know, she doesn't, I, she doesn't deny any part of her identification, but she was born and raised in an era um, by her Indian mother to sort of recognize that the world was likely going to see her, her blackness first, and so she often leads with that. But you're also also going to see her being described as a woman of color more, right? Because that just describes the fact that she's non-white, um, and 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 it's sort of is a catch-all for both. Um, of her identity. All right. Thank you. It's really helpful to understand all of that. Uh, Patricia, um, she is, her mother was a cancer researcher, her father an economist. They divorced when she was uh, seven years old and she was primarily raised by her mother, but she did talk in her uh, speech yesterday about the fact that from the time she was a toddler, in uh, uh, she was taken, bundled up, and taken to civil rights demonstrations. That's how her parents actually met, fighting for civil rights. And and Patricia, I know you've covered her on the Hill, of course, and I've I've covered her, talked to her during her short campaign as well. And and I have to say this, and I'd love your take on it. Among the many uh, credentials that she brings to the ticket, and, and we'll talk about the pluses and minuses, she is an incredibly charismatic uh, person. I mean, she really knows how to light up a room, and I you can't underestimate the value of that, uh, even as you talk about pluses and minuses in more substantive ways, right? Well, she has a lot of attributes that you would absolutely want on a national ticket. And one of those is the ability to campaign and to campaign effectively. And I covered her on a back porch in Florence, South Carolina. I covered her in large convention halls. I covered her in Senate hearings uh, as a member of the Judiciary Committee. She is an absolute um, kind of axe grinder on the on the Senate Judiciary Committee. She has this unbelievable range of abilities in terms of a public face of a campaign that you would want. Um, but I think the most important thing, this is the most important um, thing about her in, in the very beginning of this process and in the end, is that she was truly very good friends with Bo Biden, who is Joe Biden's late son. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what made her attack on him so personal and deeply hurtful last year when she attacked him for his, uh, for his uh, past positions on forced busing. And that's what hurt his feelings so much and hurt Joe Biden's feelings so much. Um, but the fact that they moved past that, now they have a very long personal relationship that is, I would say, 90% positive. And that's something that has always been really important to Biden. And so I think he knew he needed somebody in this role who he knew and knew well and felt he could trust and felt 
um, also that would be able to step into that job on day two, if anything ever happened. I think voters, because of Biden's age, are going to demand somebody who is qualified um, without having to think very hard about the job. She's got immense amounts of experience. And so it made her, I think, the natural pick. So I was going to ask uh, Andra to, to respond to this question and then, and then Patricia, too. You, you know, you, you made reference, uh, Patricia just made reference to uh, that punch she landed in that in that first debate on Biden. And uh, so she was there was a point where she looked like the I don't know if front runners, probably too strong a word, but she was like, wow, this this uh, candidate could be the one. And then. In the ne- next time she was in a debate, she seemed to have lost her edge, and and even some of her answers and you know in in Q and As with journalists seemed to be a little bit muddled. What happened there? What 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 did you see there, Andra, uh, that made her stall? Um, well, I mean, I think that there are a number of things. Um, I think in autopsies of her presidential campaign, they do talk about uh, this organization, which could be sort of the part of running a first you know national campaign. Um, I think in general. You know, there's the question of, well, why didn't African-American voters rally around her? Why didn't they rally around Cory Booker? I just think that there were too many people that were in the field. Um, and um, I think we all think that African-Americans always rally around one person. That's not always the case, given the circumstances. And in particular, with so many people in the field and with there not necessarily being a clear front runner and with there being ideological differences amongst the candidates that were stark, um, I think it was really hard for uh for voters to uh, settle on who they wanted it to be. And especially if you think that a candidate is a long shot, then that's not, that's not going to sort of uh, help you acquire the type of support that you need. And so I think ultimately um, both of those candidates would have um, benefited from um, participating in a smaller field. And I think that, you know, their numbers would have looked a little bit better and maybe they would have been able to stay in the race longer. But like when you have 20 plus candidates in the field, it's really hard for any of them, especially relatively newer uh, political figures to kind of gain a foothold there. So I don't think that in the end that as as evidenced by the pick that uh, her political career was hurt by this. I don't think Cory Booker's political career was hurt by this. And I wouldn't use their primary performance as evidence of sort of like what their relative standing is in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I would also add um, that when you, in a Democratic primary, and there were so little difference between these candidates' positions with the exception of Joe Biden, it came down to just kind of using a scalpel to carve out your own piece of that electorate. Um, And I think her campaign was very weak with that scalpel. Uh, the good the good news for her and for Democrats is that in a general election, it's not about a scalpel. It's about a sledgehammer, especially when you're running against Donald Trump. And she is very skilled with a sledgehammer, I think, as we've all seen. You don't want to be on the other side of an attack from Kamala Harris if you're Joe Biden, but you wouldn't mind having that skill set and that attack um, on your side against another candidate. All right, Chuck, I want to bring this home to Georgia. Um, you you certainly represent a district that has uh, uh, moved uh, into the blue column uh, recently, um, and, and yet we, we don't know how things are going to go in in Gwinnett and beyond Gwinnett, up in your uh, northwest uh, northeast area of, uh, of Georgia, of metro area. Um, give us your take on how you think Kamala Harris will impact the ticket. 
Um, will she have make an impact on voters in your district, for instance? What, what's your sense of that right now? Well, Senator Harris has a very impressive biography, very strong credentials, but there is I think going to be um, a real review of her career in law enforcement, both as a district attorney and as attorney general of California in the past. And cases of marijuana possession and other nonviolent offenses that were vigorously prosecuted by Senator Harris's office when she was district attorney will be scrutinized. Here in Georgia, we have a proud history over the past decade of embracing criminal justice reform under former Governor Nathan Deal's leadership. And nationally, there has clearly, I think, also been an appetite for criminal justice reform. And the administration has supported the First Step Act and other legislation. So I think that debate and discussion about criminal justice reform, which has been on Georgia voters' minds for, uh, for the past decade, I think will really be uh, an important discussion and debate. And, uh, and that's how I anticipate uh, the conversation going and the discussion taking place. So, of course, Andra, this raises an interesting question about uh, Kamala Harris's record and how, as Chuck Efstration says, Republicans may want to go after her. So if give me just a moment, and then I want to give everybody on the panel a chance to weigh in. Uh, many of us are already aware of a contradictory element to her biography that will get a lot of uh, uh, coverage in the weeks ahead. When she became San Francisco district attorney, she ran on an anti-death penalty platform. She said she did not support the death penalty because it disadvantaged, it was applied disproportionately, no surprise, to uh, minority men particularly. So when, when San Francisco police officer Isaac Espinosa was shot by a gang member, killed in 2004, she said, I will not push for the death penalty, but life imprisonment. She got enormous pushback. Senator Dianne Feinstein, at Officer Espinosa's funeral, in her remarks, pointed to Kamala Harris sitting in the uh, service and, and condemned her for not asking for the death penalty. That's 2004. Okay, very quickly... 2010, she's the California Attorney General. She has said all along, I'm against the death penalty. And yet, when a case in court uh, challenged whether the death penalty was in fact legal uh, in the state of California, she as Attorney General uh, uh, argued to keep the death penalty in place. Those are going to be things that a lot of us are looking at. Andra, you take the first shot at that strange push and pull there. Yeah, I mean, these. Uh, this is going. This is a liability for her, so they're going to have to figure out how to craft a message to reconcile that. Um, that's probably a bigger concern for me than it would be that she served as a prosecutor. Um, so, you know, in general, I mean, I would say this in defense of Doug Collins too. I, just the idea that we are demonizing people for serving as prosecutors and defense attorneys is absolutely ludicrous, right? We have to have them in order to have a functioning legal system, but. The issue sort of that, that, that comes to this is that I know that people who are advocating for policing reform probably don't want a prosecutor to kind of be their standard bearer in this situation. But it's also been weaponized by the Trump administration, and he is taking a very racialized tack and trying to tell white suburbanites that their communities are not going to be safe in a Biden administration. So the idea that Biden has chosen a prosecutor as his running mate um, can help blunt 
that particular attack, even though I can point to plenty of, 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 of cases in the past where Blacks with a history of law enforcement get demonized as being soft on crime because you're just sort of invoking their Blackness in order to say that they're just going to let other Black people go crazy. Um, and, and, and they're going to have to sort of confront that. But what it does mean is that from a policy standpoint, she might actually be able to position herself as being the broker that can bring everybody together in order to talk about these issues. And I would say for people who are upset that people have taken tough on crime stances before, we should acknowledge the heterogeneity of opinion in African-American communities. Um, there are a lot of African-Americans who like law enforcement, um, who like policing, um, aren't sort of, you know, don't want to totally defund the police. We have to acknowledge that that, 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 that those points of view are there and that they have a seat at the table. And we also have to acknowledge the fact that anybody who has served in office for a long period of time has probably evolved their point of view. And we've got to give them the space to say what they've learned from their prior policy mistakes. Um, I, Patricia, I know you want to get in. Let me ask Chuck a quick question, and then you please take it, Patricia. So, uh, Chuck, uh, uh, Andra pointed out uh, uh, the way President Trump uh, has tried to appeal to what he calls suburban housewives. Uh, and just yesterday, he, in comments about Kamala Harris, included Cory Booker and said that if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are elected, uh, Cory Booker is going to be uh, uh, the head of, uh, of uh, uh, he'll, he'll have a role in federal housing, and he'll start putting low-income housing in suburban neighborhoods. And, of course, Chuck, you or much of your district has some of those suburban neighborhoods. I, I'm curious how you think that sort of, uh, how does that play with uh, voters up your way? Bill, I didn't see that tweet, and I certainly am not in a position to explain uh, the tweets that uh, the president makes. What I what I would say is that the Republican Party and Republican uh, elected officials have a strong record, particularly here in Georgia, of uh, being clear on this issue. I carried legislation this year uh, that addressed a problem with Georgia's uh, Fair Housing Act to allow for claims of racial discrimination to be brought by uh by residents, the act had been out of date since 2012, and we fixed that. It passed unanimously in both bodies of the General Assembly, and Governor Kemp signed it. So I, I would I would just uh, submit that uh, we have strong records on specific legislation that we carried here in Georgia for your listening audience here in Georgia. And, uh, and I expect that uh, criminal justice reform issues, which are, have been discussed or debated particularly in police funding issues that are currently uh, being talked about, are likely to be, I think, top of mind for voters when they go in the polls November 3rd. Yeah, I would say, um, I mentioned a little bit about a sledgehammer earlier. Um, I don't think that the attacks on Kamala Harris are gonna be nearly as nuanced and thoughtful as the issues that Representative Estration has raised. Um, I think it's gonna be that she's a socialist, that she wants to raise your taxes. By the way, she's black. Um, I think the president has been very clear about how he plans to attack Kamala Harris. I think these attacks would have been the case on anybody that Joe Biden chose. I think they all are aware of these attacks and know that they're coming. But I think the, the, um, the double-edged sword for the president has always been that as much as he excites some in his own base with these kinds of attacks, it is incredibly offensive not just to minorities and members of minority communities. It is incredibly offensive to many people of just good conscience who wake up during the day and say, why are you calling people 
nasty and 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 raising these racially motivated accusations and trying to scare people and demonize people and calling anybody a suburban housewife in 2020 is just makes your head want to explode. So um, I think uh, it's going to be a sledgehammer kind of race. And <laughs> um, I don't think that Kamala Harris was really that worried about it, actually. Um, go, but I'm sorry, go ahead. I think Patricia's spot on there uh, that this, this will not be in any way subtle whatsoever. And I, I, I know that I could be wrong, but I don't recall a sitting president um, responding to the choice of a running mate for hours and hours as the president did yesterday, which is, isn't a, in and of itself a bit unusual, right? That uh, he would take all the time he had before the cameras yesterday and talk at length about the vice presidential choice of his opponent. But I do think, you know, certain words, which we've seen before, I mean, Andre, help me here. I mean, the word nasty has an implication to many people that, uh, you know, when the president uses it, uh, he tends to use it in certain ways and it, and it's, it has a message. Am I correct about that? Well, I mean, he used it against Hillary Clinton. So, you know, very famously in that debate where he called her a nasty woman. Um, and so um, the president has demonstrated um, a certain level of discomfort when he's challenged, particularly by women, um, and he's lashed back. And so we have seen it happen time and time again. If we look at the women in the White House press corps that he has gone toe to toe with, from Wei Jia Zhang or Yimi Shao or April Ryan. Um, um, to Paula Reed, like, I mean, he's, he's just, you know, done this. I mean, you know, he disparaged Paula Reed by, like, forever calling her Donna Reed, um, sort of, sort of typing back to sort of his notion of sort of, like, where he thinks a woman's place is. So, um, yeah, no, so I think it's a question of whether or not the sort of racist and misogyny act has gotten old and whether or not people sort of, you know, recognize this for what it is and will choose to try to discount um, what he's saying as an ad hominem attack that actually isn't relevant to sort of like weighing his record and whether or not he deserves a second term. Chuck, um, uh, you're obviously not a spokesperson for the Trump campaign, um, but but I'm curious about your take on something, and, and other people can respond to this as well. Um, obviously, in any election, uh, we now are... are, are completely familiar and used to the fact that a good part of how you uh, run your campaign is to attack the opposition, which has already begun in a very personal and uh, uh, demeaning way in terms of Kamala Harris. But, but here's my question for you. Uh, in the long run, it, it, no matter how you attack Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, no matter how vitriolic the campaign becomes, is there anything that's going to shift this general election away from being a referendum on the performance of Donald Trump? In other words, can you effectively attack Biden and Harris and hope that it will change the dynamics of the election, which seem right now to be about whether President Trump should get another four years? What's your sense of that? Well, certainly, traditionally, a president's re-election campaign is a referendum on the president's administration. What I think is uh, important to note is there are uh, there were many voters in 2016 who talked about uh, their decision to vote for President Trump because uh, because of their opposition to uh, nominee Clinton at the time. And I think that the uh, cannot be discounted that uh, talking about the record of the uh, president uh, presidential candidate 
uh, Vice President Biden and presidential uh, uh, vice president candidate Senator Harris, they each have extensive records in public office. And so that debate and discussion about their records, what they've done when they've been in office, I think is likely to uh, to carry into the future. And Bill, to answer your question, yes, I think that voters, uh, that could dissuade voters from just making this a referendum on the current administration. Okay, I want to get a break in, but I'd like to ask the rest of the panel to weigh in on that. And then again, I want to ask the panel, uh, as I asked Chuck Evstration a few minutes ago, just how do we see this election now shaping up with the tickets in place here in Georgia? But let's get a break out of the way. More in a moment on Political Rewind. As Patricia Murphy uh, alluded to at the very beginning of the show, the Democratic Convention uh, starts on Monday. It's, it's virtually all virtual. Uh, the Republican Convention starts a week later on August 24th. Uh, we were initially, like many of people, uh, certainly you, Patricia, planned on being in Milwaukee and Charlotte to cover the uh, conventions in person. Obviously, that isn't happening. But I want you to know that during both weeks, Political Rewind is going to devote a good bit of our time to covering the activities of both conventions. We'll have delegates from both the Democratic and Republican parties in. We'll have surrogates on behalf of the campaigns here. Uh, and we'll have some of our favorite political analysts come in to talk to us about how the conventions are unfolding. That'll start on Monday right here on Political Rewind. Uh, Kevin, every poll that we have seen uh, in the last month says that Georgia is up for grabs, certainly at the presidential level. And so, Kevin, I think a really important question is, now that the tickets are fixed, where do we think this is all headed? And I assume you're going to be doing some polling fairly soon. Please, Editor Riley. Yeah, we, <laughs> we definitely have plans for polling and, and uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of plans. Um, but uh, I, again, I, I think that, um, and I, I'm really curious to, to hear from our analysts on this, Georgia, let's let's not argue about whether or not it's in play. And instead, I think, ask ourselves, uh, can Republicans comfortably count on it without having to spend much time or money here? And I think that the answer to that question is no, that if nothing else, Democrats can force Georgia to be occupied, you know, force Republicans to be occupied with Georgia more than they have had to be in the past. And that could distract the Republicans because there, there's just really no path without Georgia, right? And that could force Republicans to be distracted in places where they simply must spend lots of time and money. Uh, well, I think it's always so important um, when people from D.C., uh, my editor's like, is Georgia in play? Is Georgia in play? Um, is it going to turn blue? And um, I told him, he said, you just cannot underestimate how important it is in this state how much infrastructure and power Republicans have built up over the years. Um, every statewide office, both houses of the General Assembly, um, so much power at the county level, um, it, it's so and so thoroughly across the state. Um, it certainly feels like that is changing. And I do think that that is why Republicans are going to have to spend more time and money down here than they want to. Um, whether it's in play, I think it certainly is in play, whether it is a toss-up, I think it's just way too early to say. I think, to your point, Bill, um, it, in a way, it almost didn't matter who Joe Biden picked. 
as his vice president, as long as it didn't lose him millions of votes in the process, because this will be about Donald Trump. And this will most likely be about how Donald Trump is handling the coronavirus um, in the fall of this year and how the country is doing. And um, he's selected somebody who can prosecute the case in Kamala Harris against the president. But this has only been about Donald Trump. And Joe Biden, to that point, is making his presidency only about Donald Trump right now. Um, He'll build out on that. But right now, he said yesterday in his speech with Kamala Harris, this is about the conscience of the country. This is about getting rid of this president who does not align with our conscience. And it's really just that simple. Um, You know, I would agree with Patricia. I mean, I think, you know, overall, Republicans still probably hold an advantage in the state, but that advantage has been shrinking over time. And we can't ignore just the trend lines in terms of seats that used to be won looked up by double-digit margins or being won by single-digit margins. And we expect that that's going to continue to narrow over time. So right now, it makes sense for Georgia to be in play. Whether or not that's actually true in six weeks, I think we have to wait and see. What I will say is is just sort of to put this in the national context, um, and not just for the presidency, but also looking at the House and the Senate, if this is a tidal wave year, so if it's a really, really, really good year for, for Democrats, Georgia's probably part of that tidal wave, and it will probably be a part of that. Um, but that's also going to require sort of infrastructure, and it's going to require the field work um, in order to make that happen. And so Republicans probably wouldn't want to have to spend resources here um, when they're not used to having to do that here. And that's part of the new normal of this state becoming more competitive. Chuck, you're an interesting example of someone who has negotiated an increasingly tricky electorate in your district. We know that Gwinnett County went blue uh, for uh, Hillary Clinton and that you're increasingly uh, dealing with Democratic voters. It is my sense, and you'll certainly correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the ways you've that that you've remained viable is because number you've taken on you you stick to working on issues that you believe have broad appeal across party lines. Your uh, hate crimes legislation is an extremely uh, a good example of just that. The way in which you described what you'd like to do with COVID nineteen here is another example of that. So I say all that not to flatter you, but to say if voters in Gwinnett County keep hearing the personal attacks from Donald Trump, uh, keep hearing the demeaning. Uh, language, um, it, it, are are they? In, they're you're gonna, they're going to lose the very people who like you because you're a uh, uh, an issue oriented guy. Is that a fair assumption, or am I wrong? Bill, as I've said on your show before, I really believe all politics is local. I think when you work on issues that are important to your local constituents, they know who you are and how to access you. Then they are not interested in lumping you in with a national debate and discussion. I'm, I'm traveling around. We're talking about national, but I'm following state house races. Representative Deborah Silcox in the Buckhead Sandy Springs area running for reelection has done some outstanding work at the Capitol. I think she's known locally in her community. Uh, in Gwinnett County, we've been talking about Gwinnett. Uh, Sue Hong, who is an outstanding attorney and a Korean-American candidate, new candidates running against a freshman Democrat locally. I think what you're going to see is there could be districts where there is support nationally for, for the Democrat ticket, but local support for Republicans. That's something that we're going to see more and more of, and I think that's a good thing. I think that responsive representation based upon issues, you mentioned me authoring and passing the Bipartisan Hate Crimes Act this year, working on the citizens' arrests. Uh, issue in Georgia and many other issues, I think that that's really how we are responsive to our 
to our constituents in a way that's not tied to specific issues and specific political parties. Oh, thank you. For that. All right, we're running way short on time, but I want to get in one last subject, and we'll just do a quick go-round on this. Kevin Riley, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a supporter of the QAnon conspiracy theory, considered a real outlier. We've been asking on this show, is she an outlier, or is the Republican Party uh, going to uh, bring her in and accept her? Donald Trump says she's a rising star, uh, congratulated on her victory, uh, Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins both congratulated her and uh, seemed to be ready to embrace her as they run against each other uh, in the Senate. Uh, Kevin, what do we make of all this? And then uh, we got three minutes, so each of you gets like about 30 seconds on this one. I would just say this, Bill, to your listener, the listeners, please do a little research on this QAnon stuff. It isn't some harmless sort of amusing thing it's a very troubling mindset out there that every american and engaged citizen should be aware of it's it's just it's just not pretty so um, we mostly assume that you know uh, green will actually you know end up winning the race just because the district is so reliably republican i think the question is how is she going to govern and is she going to carry these theories into dealing with her colleagues and if she goes in and she's a flamethrower and she's inflammatory my concern for her just as professionally is that she ends up risking alienating kevin mccarthy and steve scalise and they may end up doing to her what happened to steve uh king in iowa which is eventually you have to end up pulling him off committees and that's not effective for the voters in the 14th district so i would just you know encourage her to moderate you know because of that mccarthy has already uh made some fairly positive comments about her since winning scalise of course worked against her patricia you weigh in please yeah so i think um that uh in her victory speech marjorie taylor green called nancy pelosi the b-word which i won't repeat um i think that is not a good way to have an effective career in congress i think it's a great way to have an effective career um maybe at some conventions certainly on one american network later um later in her career but it is not going to be a good way no member of the republican leadership think that's thinks that's okay and and no member of the georgia delegation thinks that's okay patricia murphy you get the last word on today's political rewind because we're completely out of time thank you Patricia, for being with us. I'm glad you get a chance to get out there and cover news when the convention starts next week. Uh, Andre Gillespie, always a pleasure to have you as well. Chuck Hefstration, thank you for being on the show. And Kevin Riley, you know how much I enjoy seeing you on these Thursdays. I'll be with you again next Thursday. But in the meantime, back again tomorrow for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. And please, whatever you do, stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.